Good evening and welcome to the LSE for those who are not in the uh, LSE community. Um, it's my pleasure this evening to welcome Nicholas Lardy to speak to us. I shall say um, a little bit more about him in just a second, but first of all, to explain the background of this series, uh, particularly for students who haven't been here before. Um, the Standard Chartered Bank uh, endowed a chair here um, a few years ago now, which is held by uh, Professor John Seidel, who is here, um, in the name of uh, Sir Patrick Gillam, who was Standard Chartered Chair, who was uh, the Chairman of Standard Chartered Bank for a number of years, but more importantly, um, was an alumnus of the LSE, or indeed, should I say, is an alumnus of the LSE, because he is here uh, with Diana, his wife, uh, this evening. Um, and as part of the arrangements uh, of endowing this uh, chair, um, the bank also uh, agreed to support a series, an annual series of uh, lectures on uh, issues of relevance to those countries in which Standard Chartered is particularly active. And as many of you will know, Standard Chartered, though it's a British bank, um, barely operates uh, in this country and its primary markets are in the Far East, uh, South Asia and in Africa. So it's been our practice to host lectures which are designed to improve our understanding of the politics, the economics and the financial systems of those countries in which Standard Chartered operates. And this is a happy partnership because, of course, the LSE community uh, is heavily populated by people from those countries or indeed by people who are researching into those countries. So that's the background to this uh, series and that's why it's called the annual Sir Patrick Gillam Lecture. It's not because Sir Patrick gives the lecture, which sadly he has not been prepared to do so far, though maybe one day, um, but uh, that's the reason why it exists. So uh, this evening we're delighted to welcome Nicholas Lardy here, who is now at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Before then he was at Brookings, before then at University of Washington, before then at Yale and is undoubtedly one of the most prominent and influential commentators, particularly on the financial scene in China, has written books recently on China's exchange rate policy and other things. And uh, the only downside for me uh, of this evening is that I now feel obliged to confess that I stole a number of your slides uh, for a lecture I gave here. Um, and one or two of the uh, arguments, because I also speak about China's financial system from time to time since I'm an advisor to the Chinese banking regulator. Uh, but I have found uh, your papers on the China's financial system, particularly a very important paper on financial repression in China, to be uh, very influential and very thought-provoking, and they combine a remarkably clear understanding of what's going on in China with uh, an ability to take a critical position uh, on aspects of what the Chinese authorities are doing. Uh, so, personally, I can't wait for this evening's lecture, since this is a subject which interests me hugely, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the school. <coughs> Well, uh, thank you very much, Howard, for that very generous introduction. I'm, <clears throat> I'm certainly very pleased to be here. I think it's an honor to 
give the, the lecture uh, named after Sir Patrick and delighted to see him and, and to meet him. Uh, and I think we all understand, uh, based on what Howard has said, that uh, Standard Charter was a financial institution that understood the meaning of emerging markets uh, more than a century before uh, BRICS and other acronyms were, were made up, and uh, he certainly played a, a key role in his time at the bank in uh, increasing uh, the bank's uh, exposure and participation in uh, the development of the economy and the financial system uh, in China. So I'm very happy to be here and honored to give the, uh, the Sir Patrick uh, Gillum lecture. I'm going to talk tonight about the last couple of years of China's economic reform and focus particularly on the stimulus program, but in the longer term context of really whether or not uh, China's economic growth pattern uh, as we've seen it emerge is sustainable or whether it is, uh, requires a very substantial uh, redirection. And I, I guess I start out with a, with a quote from China's premier, a, a very famous quote that he gave at the National People's Congress uh, in March of 2007, so almost four years ago, in which he talked about China's economy was unsteady, unbalanced, uncoordinated, and unsustainable. And this was a rather remarkable statement because China at that time had had the strongest five-year period of economic growth in its whole 30 years of reform. So if you looked at the kind of headline economic numbers, uh, China was doing extremely well. So what I want to begin with is explore what did he really have in mind when he characterized the Chinese economy this way, uh, and what's the explanation of how they got to uh, that situation, and what's the way out going forward. So to begin with, <clears throat> what's the evidence that China's economy was imbalanced? Well, I think the thing that we focus on most uh, obviously and first is the fact that consumption share of GDP uh, has declined quite dramatically, and particularly if you look at the period after the turn of the millennium, you see that China's consumption share of GDP <coughs> declined continuously and kind of reached the level of about 35% of GDP, which is clearly far and away the lowest consumption share of any economy in recorded economic history. Uh, so household consumption has been relatively weak. Obviously, the economy is growing fast. Uh, but let me take government consumption. Government consumption, uh, not much of a long-term trend, but also over since the turn of the millennium had been declining uh, fairly systematically. Uh, something had to be going up, and we know what that was. It's capital formation. Uh, capital formation uh, rising again from the turn of the millennium up very steadily to approaching 45% of GDP, which again is a level unrecorded uh, for this sustained period of time, you can see well above 40% for five or six years. No other country that we have data for has ever had a rate of investment uh, as high as China experienced uh, in that first six or seven years after uh, the turn of the uh, millennium. And the other indicator of imbalance is the fact that China, particularly after 2003, 2004, was recording unprecedented external surpluses. Uh, reaching a peak of almost 9% of GDP on goods and services in the year 2007. A current account was even larger, about 10.6% of GDP. If you go back and think of Japan uh, in the mid-80s when the United States was very exercised about Japan's surplus, uh, Japan's surplus was only 3.4% of GDP at the peak. So China has this massive uh, external surplus. Um, we can look at it, I'll just 
stop briefly on this in terms of growth accounting. You can see the red line showing the contribution of capital formation to overall economic growth approaching 50 percent, uh, consumption being in international terms very, very low, and net exports of goods and services adding a couple of percentage points to GDP growth with this uh, contribution of 15 to 20 percent for several years, roughly uh, 2005, uh, 6, and 7. We can also look at the imbalance in terms of the structure of output and uh, looking just at manufacturing and services. And what we saw in China in the 80s and the 90s was a very standard pattern in which the services share of GDP expanded fairly steadily, but over time quite significantly. So going roughly from 22% uh, in the early 80s up to around uh, 40% by the turn of the millennium, but then you can see after that the services share of GDP didn't expand very much. Indeed, it was basically roughly flat uh, for the next uh, seven or eight years. I think, again, this is un there's unparalleled. You can't find a rapidly growing emerging market or low-income country that grows as fast as China did for three decades and not have a fairly continuous rise in the services share of GDP. So as you get, start putting all these things together, the consumption share is unusually low, the investment share is unusually high, net exports of goods and services unusually high, and the structure of output is also a bit of an outlier uh, in international uh, and historical perspective. So I think that's among the things that Wen Jiabao had in mind. There are many other things we could talk about, the increasing income inequality, the imbalances, uh, the coast versus the uh, interior part of the country that he also had in mind, but I'm just going to focus on these, these aspects uh, that I've already touched on. Now, one question is, on the external side, you know, how did they come to have such a big external surplus? Well, we know the external surplus is the difference between savings and investment, that is national savings and national investment. And China had a very, very sharply rising share of national savings. So even though we had uh, high levels of investment, uh, the savings, particularly again uh, from the middle part of the last decade on, expanded even more rapidly uh, than savings. So this big external surplus emerged. Now, where did all this extra savings come from? what was going on. And again, we want to look at several parts of the economy. And the conventional wisdom for many years was that the problem was in the household sector. All these Chinese households saving so much money, the precautionary demand for savings and so forth. And indeed, it is true from the turn of the millennium on, the household savings rate did rise several percentage points, but it accounts for less than half the increase in the total national savings rate over this period. And in international perspective, China's household savings rate isn't very different from many other emerging markets. It's not so different from that in India, for example. Uh, of course, it's astronomically high compared to the United States, where in many years we had negative sa household savings rates uh, leading up to the uh, financial and economic uh, crisis. But in a broader perspective, the household sector in China doesn't seem to be that big of an outlier. The next thing people focused on was the industrial sector, and particularly the corporate sector. And here you can see corporate profits did expand very dramatically after the turn of the millennium uh, and roughly more than doubled their share of GDP. This is after-tax profits, which is basically uh, corporate savings, uh, and they, they rose quite dramatically 
obviously by four or five percentage points of GDP uh, between 2001 and 2007. So they were part of the problem. Uh, but corporate investment also rose fairly rapidly in this period. Now, when we got more recent data a couple of years ago, it turns out that the government itself was a major source of increased savings, uh, particularly after the middle part of the last decade. Uh, so more recently, people have begun to focus on the contribution of the government sector to the savings, the excess savings uh, in China. So I think in summary, if we're looking at this from the perspective of a savings investment imbalance, the thing that's remarkable about China is that it has relatively high savings rates in all parts of the system. In the household sector, not astronomically high, but, but quite mo moderately high, corporate sector savings has gone up, but particularly the government savings uh, has increased fairly rapidly. And it turns out from an accounting point of view, the increase in the government savings rate was actually the biggest contributor to the rise in the savings rate overall. So if they have too much savings relative to investment showing up in a big external surplus, what's the solution? What can be done uh, from a policy perspective? And there are many, many ways you can organize your thoughts on this question. I tend to kind of put it in four baskets of things that the government could do and should be doing to address uh, these imbalances. The first of these is fiscal policy, and I'm thinking both of the tax side of fiscal policy and the expenditure side of fiscal policy. On the tax side, they could be cutting uh, tax rates, particularly for the household sector. They should be increasing uh, uh, government programs in education, health, other social programs, so that uh, the precautionary demand for savings in the household sector uh, would be slightly diminished over time. Um, and you could have a much bigger taxation of the corporate sector. You could have a particular, a big uh, dividend tax or require the big uh, corporate, uh, corporates that are state-owned to pay dividends to the state. Most companies pay dividends to their owners, but in the case of state-owned companies in China, uh, they don't pay dividends or have not paid dividends for many years, and so they have huge retained earnings, and that adds uh, to the savings in the corporate sector. The government should be taxing some of that away in the form of a, requiring corporates to pay dividends, and they could use those uh, sources of uh, income to increase social expenditures. So that's the fiscal side. Uh, the financial side is uh, something Howard alluded to, that is China has a highly repressive financial system in which households that put their money in the bank basically get taxed. You can see this today. Uh, if you put your money in a, in a demand deposit in China, you earn 36 basis points. If you put your money in a one-year uh, CD type of uh, d deposit, you can earn 2.75 percentage points. But we know inflation peaked last month at a little over 5%. Year-over-year -year inflation is well in excess of 3%. So people that put their money in the banking system actually find that it's being eroded away. And the rate at which is eroded away on the calculation in the paper that Howard referred to, I calculated was about three times the amount that household paid in the personal income tax. So it's a hidden tax uh, that takes, uh, takes you know, uh, exercise uh, through uh, inflation and relatively stable government fixed, central bank fixed uh, deposit rates. So we need to get rid of financial repression so that households can earn more on their financial assets, which are quite uh, substantial and mostly take the form of, of bank deposits. Um, <clears throat> the third thing uh, that needs to be done is to get rid of underpricing of a lot of inputs. Uh, China has marketized its economy dramatically since the late 1970s, early 80s. 
virtually all the product prices are completely liberalized. The prices are set by supply and demand. But there are certain very important factor prices that are not completely deregulated. The price of energy, the price of water, uh, and so forth. Those kinds of things are still, uh, prices of those things are still fixed by the government and in many cases they're fixed at below cost levels. And the biggest beneficiary of that subsidy, implicit subsidy, turns out to be the manufacturing sector. China's not like advanced industrial countries like the UK or the US where most electricity is consumed by the household sector. Most electricity in China is consumed by the corporate sector, not by households. Um, so if you have underpriced inputs, it's a subsidy to the manufacturing sector. And of course, implicitly, it's a tax on households. It disadvantages the service sector, which doesn't use those inputs so extensively. And finally, uh, they need to let their exchange rate appreciate uh, more, which would reduce their external surplus, would reduce the tilt of investment into the tradable goods sector, which has been very important over the last decade. We get more rapid growth of the service sector share of GDP, which is penalized implicitly by an undervalued exchange rate. Would also be positive for employment, because the services sector is more labor intensive than manufacturing, so would help to grow the wage share of GDP, which has been declining. Uh, fairly steadily, just as consumption declined, one of the big reasons it declined uh, is not so much that household savings went up, but the wage share of GDP went down as the profit share uh, went down. So in a, that's my summary of the kinds of policies China should adopt if it wants to uh, get rid of the, the, the characteristics that Wen Jiabao talked about in 2007. And indeed, the government has been talking about carrying out these policies for quite a number of years now. The officially, the Chinese Communist Party endorsed this idea of rebalancing as long ago as late 2004. So what I'd like to do is to review quickly uh, the record to date. How well has the government done uh, in each of these uh, policy domains, uh, each of these four policy domains that I just, that I just mentioned? And I'll start with the fiscal side, and uh, this is one of the areas where they've done remarkably well. This is, diagram shows you what's happening to expenditures for health programs, social security, employment programs, and education financed by the Chinese Communist government uh, at all levels, a national level, provincial level, and local level. And without going through every single item, uh, you can see basically that the outlays uh, for education in 2009 were about two and a half times what they were in 2004. Health was about four times. So these things grew very rapidly. Um, and it reflected a number of very uh, good programs. They got rid of primary school fees in the countryside. Uh, they rolled out a cooperative medical insurance program in the countryside, which now reaches about 90% of the rural population. Uh, they made very substantial increases in transfer payments Social Security uh, payments over this period, or the last three years of this period alone, went up by more than 30 percent. Uh, so total social expenditures from the government uh, did increase. If you look at it as a share of GDP, it's maybe not that impressive, going from, say, 5 percent up to 6.5 percent. But remember, GDP is growing very, very rapidly. The growth of expenditures in these programs that I've just been reviewing has, was uh, 20 percent per year over this period. So they did do a lot to rebuild the social uh, safety network. On the other hand, another fiscal policy that I mentioned would be to introduce a dividend tax on corporates. They did introduce a tax uh, but in 2007, but it was very, very small. The big 
state-owned companies are very powerful politically and they fought off a, a serious dividend tax. The whole debate is now uh, being uh, revisited again and I think the tax will go up, but the dividend tax in 2007, for example, where here we have these massive profits in the corporate sector, which I just showed you, were up to almost 10% of GDP. The dividend tax in 2007, when it was first introduced, was 0.07% of GDP. So it barely touched uh, the profitability of the corporate sector. So the fiscal side, they did a lot on expenditures, building the social safety net, but not so much on the dividend tax on these highly profitable state companies. Um, the financial sector, of, uh, the <clears throat> you can see here, I'm just showing you the one-year deposit rate versus the consumer price index. You had a huge amount of financial repression, particularly back in 2007 and the early part of 2008 when the blue line is way above the red line, which is, uh, you know, you can do the subtraction and figure out what the real negative interest rate was. And we're now in another period of financial repression, not quite as bad as that earlier one, but uh, financial repression remains an important characteristic of the uh, financial sector and has a major effect on household income. People don't remember or f never knew how much money households have in the bank. Um, at the end of 2009, they had about 30 trillion RMB in the bank. If you don't know, China's GDP that year was about 34 trillion. So you won't remember 30 or 34, but just so keep in mind that household deposits in the banking system are about 90% of GDP. I don't know what it is in the UK. I think I looked this up recently for the US you know, it's like 10% or 15%. It's very, very modest. Households have their financial assets predominantly in bank deposits. So the tax that they face in the form of very low interest rates relative to inflation is very significant. If, they, if the authorities raise the deposit rates, and remember I told you the, the, the authorities control these depositive rates, if they raised the deposit rates on to, so that the returns to household savers were just positive 1%, just positive 1%, their real household income would go up by a trillion RMB, which is 3% of GDP. So households would have in their pockets an amount of money equal to 3% of GDP. If they save 20% of it, as they usually do, that would give a lot, that would give a big boost to household uh, consumption. On um, price reforms, uh, a very mixed picture. They've done some things on price reforms they, uh, in fuel and, and diesel and, and gasoline, but electric power, natural gas, water, land are still significantly underpriced. There's some more discussion today about reform of prices uh, of these commodities, but when we have inflation ticking up, as we've seen over the last few months, the tendency of the leadership is to postpone price reform, which might cause uh, some would not, wouldn't cause, probably cause, it would certainly cause some of these prices to go up and in some cases quite uh, significantly. So price reform is like financial sector liberalization, not very much has been done. Uh, finally, on the exchange rate, um, uh, you probably all were about to flee when Howard mentioned that my most recent book was on the exchange rate. You probably thought I'd be just talking about that. Uh, I only have one diagram on the exchange rate, so you don't have to leave. Uh, but the purpose of this diagram is to show you how big China's external surplus has been, the blue line, and how much their exchange rate has appreciated over time since the mid-1990s. You know, they got a lot of headlines um, <clears throat> in the middle of 2005 when they began to liberalize, 
and the and the currency did appreciate somewhat, but it had appreciated so little in the period running up to 2005. Indeed, it had depreciated, as you can see, the downward trend in the red line from uh, roughly January 2001 going forward. It took them until 2007 just to offset the previous depreciation. So not surprisingly, the external surplus rose uh, significantly. So I think the exchange rate instrument has not been used. So you can see um, I'm not giving very strong marks on, on how well they've done on the, on the reform, uh, on the rebalancing. I'm giving them pretty strong marks on the fiscal side, but weaker marks on financial sector reform, pricing reform, and exchange rate uh, reform. Um, now, all these things, as I'll say maybe uh, a little bit more later, are back on the agenda, so we'll have, those are the things to watch going forward to see what they actually do. Now, I want to turn now specifically, having kind of given you this background information about the, the challenge of rebalancing, what the policy instruments are, I want to look very specifically, as the title of the talk suggested, I want to look specifically at the last two years and ask the question, did the stimulus program move the reform agenda forward a little bit or did it set it back a little bit? And I'm going to talk about quite a number of different issues and I'm going to start out with this whole question that I raised in the title about, about the bubbles uh, that many people are worried about and it, it is still a very uh, big source of concern uh, for those who follow the Chinese financial system, the Chinese economy more broadly. Well, you can see there's certainly some worry. This is the monthly increase in loans outstanding, and you can see the huge jump up that occurred uh, starting at the very tail end of November, uh, very tail end of 08, which is when they launched their stimulus program, but particularly in 09, you see massive increases in loans. Uh, but you can also see that this was a fairly brief period. The big increase in lending was in the first half of 2009, and it has, with the exception of January uh, last year, has tended to taper off uh, quite a bit more recently. So when we talk about monetary tightening, which has been much in the headlines over the last few months, I think it should be seen in the context that actually the rate of growth of lending has actually been slowing down uh, since the first half of 2009. This is not a new policy. It's been one implemented very gradually, like many other Chinese policies. If you put it in terms of the growth of lending on an annual basis, you can see there was a complete credit blowout in 2009 when the amount of loans outstanding increased by an amount, uh, an amount equal to about a third of GDP. I think this is really extraordinary. And now uh, last year it's down to about 20%. So I would argue we're converging back towards a growth of credit that will be in the neighborhood of 15%. Uh, you know, plus or minus a little bit, which I think is a, a rate that is consistent with China's price, you know, price stability, average price increases, you know, something in the range of three, three and a half, four percent. So I think the monetary tightening uh, is needed, uh, but I don't think that uh, the substantial growth of lending um, is, has launched an inflationary boom that is going to lead to dramatic monetary tightening, which is going to slow the Chinese economy down dramatically, uh, as is sometimes hypothesized, I think even most recently today, uh, in the Financial Times. So I'm in the school that says, given the collapse of the global economy and China's exposure to that, 
because of their high exports relative to GDP, that very substantial monetary expansion in 2009 uh, was an appropriate policy. It kept their growth rate, uh, you know, relatively strong, com certainly compared to many OECD countries where GDP actually shrunk uh, in uh, 2009. Now, another argument about the lending and leads to a second critique of the um, stimulus program, and that is that well, you know, they just lent out, pushed a lot, the banks just put a, pushed a lot of money out the door. They gave it to a lot of state-owned companies. They're going to expand their capacity. There's going to be excess capacity. This will put downward pressure on prices. The company profits will decline. They'll never be able to repay these loans. Uh, I also don't believe that criticism. And one of the reasons I don't believe it is I look very carefully every quarter at what's happening to medium and long-term lending in China. And as you can see from this diagram, the manufacturing sector even before the crisis, and including in the crisis, was, that's the red line, was only getting about 10% of the loans. Uh, and the big borrower in 2008 and 2009 was infrastructure. This is the lending to the companies, state-owned companies, to be sure, the state-owned companies that are responsible for building the metro systems in, in Chinese cities, building the water systems, building the sewage treatment systems, and so forth. And um, so the manufacturing sector actually didn't borrow that much in 2009, and I don't think they built up much excess capacity. In 2000, steel is frequently cited as a sector where China tends towards excess capacity, and investment grew very dramatically in, in 2009, but investment in the steel sector from all sources, retained earnings, bond issuance, bank borrowing, and so forth, was only 3%. So they still invested a lot, but it was only 3% more than they had invested in, in that industry uh, in uh, 2008. Another aspect of the bubble, of course, is property. And here I want to spend a little bit more time to examine whether or not China's also created a bubble in the, in the property sector. And essentially what I want to say is that China has had a, I think, under-heralded policy of kind of macroprudential regulation that has been specifically targeted at the housing sector. And uh, the shaded areas are the times, the months, in which China has introduced these measures uh, in the housing sector. Uh, it started in the first round, uh, as you can see, in the latter part of 2007, I can't remember, October, November. Uh, and continued right up to the Lehman crisis in the fall of 2008. Well, what are these targeted measures? China, you know, this is not like the United States where Mr. Greenspan famously said, well, I wouldn't know an asset bubble if I saw one. And he next said, and even if there was a very wise man who could tell me this was definitely an asset bubble, I wouldn't know what to do about it. And if there was another very wise man who said, here's what you should do about it, he said, well, I worry that doing those things would actually cause more harm than the bursting of the bubble. So, well, we now know what the harm is from the bursting of the bubble. Uh, but the Chinese, as early as 2007, had a somewhat different view of the world. And particularly, they had a somewhat different view of property. And so they came to the view, which I think we would have benefited from, that one of the main sources of excess euphoria or whatever you want to call it in the property sector is those who are speculating or what you call here the buy to let uh, people. Um, 
investors, if you want to use a better word. <clears throat> so what are the measures they do? When in the fall of 2007, they said the normal, um, the normal um, down payment, if you want to get a mortgage in China, they still require down payments, very old-fashioned. Uh, the normal down payment is 20%. But in the fall of 2007, the regulator said, if, if you're going to take out a mortgage for a property that you're not going to live in, you have to pay 40% down. Then the next question that comes up is, well, what interest rate are you going to have to pay on the mortgage? And if you're not going to live in the property that is supported by the mortgage, you have to pay an interest rate that's 30% higher than if you were a first-time buyer and you were going to live in the property supported by the mortgage. So they have a penalty down payment requirement. They have a penalty interest requirement. And the third <clears throat> penalty is uh, China does not yet have a property tax. I think it will fairly soon. <clears throat> but like Hong Kong and maybe some other British-influenced places, um, they have a, a transactions tax, which in some, some uh, jurisdictions with connections to the UK, I think is called a stamp tax. Um, and in, in China, it's 5.5%. So if you sell a property, you pay a tax of 5.5%. It's not on the gain. It's on the total, uh, it's on the total sale. Uh, but the convention has always been in China, if you live in a property for more than two years, you're exempt from paying the tax. So if you buy a house and you think, well, I might move somewhere else or I'm going to have more children, I'll need to have a bigger place, um, you don't, if you live in the place for two years, you don't have to pay the tax. But when these, in these shaded area times, um, they change the rules. They say, and oh, the, so the third thing they say is, oh, by the way, if you want to avoid the stamp tax, or as they call it, the property tax, the transactions tax, you have to live in the property for five years. So this makes a very different proposition for the speculators or the buy-to-let people. They're going to have to pay twice as much down. They're going to have to pay an interest rate that's 30% higher, and they're going to have to hold the property for five years before they can flip it and avoid paying the transactions tax. Well, what happens when these measures go into effect? Well, you can see on the price side, all these are the prices on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, well, first of all, sales slow down with about a one-quarter lag. Starts slow down with about a two-quarter lag. And as you can see here, with about a two-quarter lag, uh, maybe a little less, prices start slowing down. Those are the, these are the little dots. Uh, yes, as soon as the prices are, these discriminatory measures are introduced, prices still continue to go up for a while. But as you can see, in the first uh, period, um, price moderation uh, set in. Slowly, slowly, prices were still going up at a lower and lower rate. But in about a year, you were getting into negative territory, and prices actually declined in absolute terms. Uh, you know, the entire time, the blue line is below 100. And so what happened was the air went out of the bubble slowly. It didn't burst. Uh, this had no repercussions on the rest of the economy. One of the reasons Mr. Greenspan didn't want to raise interest rates is he feared that it would slow down a lot of other parts of the economy that were dependent on credit and weren't suffering, uh, didn't have the uh, frothiness of the real estate sector. Um, well, in the fall of 2008, Lehman went bust and the Chinese could see we were headed for a major global recession. They took all these measures off. They suspended them because they knew exports were going to decline. If they want to sustain economic growth, they had their big stimulus program coming. They knew they'd have to you know, depend somewhat on a revival or a reacceleration of the housing sector. So they took all these measures off, 
and that lasted until uh, roughly December of uh, January, December, January 09, excuse me, January 10, and they, re they reinserted all these measures. Again, why? They reinserted these measures when the year-over-year -year price increase started heading up for about 8 9%. So, and again, you see now we have had um, eight consecutive months of price moderation in the housing sector. Prices are still going up, but more like 5 6% instead of 12 13%. And so I'm not saying this period will end up exactly as the last period. There are some ways it's different. They've now raised the down payment requirement for speculators up to 50% um, and taken a number of other measures. But I would say in general whether or not this period of uh, controlling prices succeeds or, or fails, that China has used a fairly innovative approach. Uh, they recognize the damage that bubbles could do, and they have shown that with certain prudential, macroprudential regulation, uh, you can try to um, address them. So on the second charge against the stimulus program, that is it created excess capacity and um, especially uh, now bubbles, uh, I, I think the charges are not really, uh, not really borne out. Now, <clears throat> what about consumption? This is, of course, one of our key determinants of whether or not they're rebalancing. And many people argued that the stimulus was all about investment, shoveling all this money to state-owned companies who, uh, and property. But there is actually quite a bit in the stimulus program that encouraged consumption. Um, they had uh, price incentives for buying consumer durables. They cut the taxes in half on certain types of vehicles. They cut the value-added tax on uh, certain kinds of durable goods. And so there was a lot of what we would refer to as tax expenditure. You didn't get the benefit of this tax reduction unless you actually went out and bought it. This is unlike the kind of income tax cuts we had in the United States, which were mostly used to pay down debt and didn't add much to real growth. Um, and households also borrowed a lot of money in 2009, so there were a lot of things going on that were stimulating consumption. I already mentioned the transfer payments were going up, not just for Social Security, uh, for retirees, but also a low-income transfer program. They increased the transfers by about 35%. And the net result I'll show you this consumption slide again, except now extended by one year. And you can see that in 2009, the share of consumption in GDP was the same as it was in 2008. So it's the first time in nine years that the consumption share of GDP did not decline more. Whether this is a turning point or not uh, remains to be seen, but uh, the conventional wisdom that consumption suffered under the investment boom of, uh, of the first full year of uh, the stimulus program, I don't think it's really warranted. Similarly, we can look at the structure of GDP, and if you look closely, you will see, again, this is extended by one more year. You can see that blue line, the services share of GDP uh, increase, the actual increase is 1.6 percentage points of GDP. This is the strongest increase in the, cons in the services share of GDP that China has recorded in 11 years. So we, did some, we saw some rebalancing, consumption held up very well, better than usual, services share had a big, uh, a big increase in its uh, share of GDP compared to the last 11-year period. So I think 
the government stimulus policy was uh, had a very strong consumption component. The question, of course, will be whether they can sustain it um, going forward. Now, I'll talk briefly about um, one issue, and that is the whole question of, of fiscal sustainability. Um, I guess I don't want to show you that slide yet. Many people have argued that, and that um, local investment companies, so-called platform companies, they go by other names, borrowed a lot of money, they're building all this infrastructure, and they'll never be able to repay it. And the banks will take a big hit, maybe not this year, but certainly in the out years. And <clears throat> to this I would say, it, is, it, it could be that the banks will lose a lot of money on that investment. Remember I showed you the, when we were looking at medium and long-term lending, 50% of medium long-term lending went to infrastructure, a huge amount of money, two and a half trillion RMB. I, I say two things in response. I think the real economic returns to most of this infrastructure investment in China will be very high. China's urbanizing rapidly. It needs uh, more subway system. It needs more water supply systems uh, and so forth. I would say it even needs uh, high-speed rail, but I, maybe you can bring that up in a question. Uh, the problem is it goes back to the price distortions. The prices that Chinese governments are able to charge for these services are very low. In most cases, they don't cover their operating costs. So how on earth are they going to be able to pay back the capital cost? So I think the economic returns will be high uh, and that the real problem is that infrastructure is massive. The services provided by infrastructure in China are massively underpriced. So I think the solution is some combination of price increases for services um, and that local governments will also have to assume the responsibility for repaying some of the, some of the loans that have been taken out by these platform companies. I, th I think China's already setting the framework for this. On an experimental basis, they're allowing a couple of provinces to introduce a property tax. I think the property tax, the income from the property tax is going to accrue entirely to local governments. And a big chunk of it eventually is going to be used to repay these loans that were uh, taken out to finance the expansion of the infrastructure sector. So this is, in my opinion, completely different from the pattern of a decade or so ago when state banks were lending a lot of money to state-owned companies. But the state-owned companies were value subtractors. They couldn't cover their costs. They were producing products that weren't, there was no demand in the market. And they kept borrowing more and more money year after year just to pay their costs. And eventually there was a huge uh, fiscal cost of, of bank bailout. I don't think that will happen this time. I think the infrastructure in China will contribute to future uh, economic growth. The tax income will rise as a consequence, maybe have a new property tax. And that local governments will, at the end of the day, uh, take the responsibility for uh, repaying a lot of these loans. <clears throat> doesn't mean it won't be messy politically. I'm sure there will be a huge debate between various levels of government with everybody saying the other guy should pay for it. The, you know, the locals will want the center to pay for it and vice versa. I, but I think, it will be, uh, I think it will be resolved. Now, I'd like to just take up one more charge against the stimulus program that in some ways is the most profound. And this is the argument that the stimulus program has really led to a fundamental setback to the long-term trend in which this private market-driven economy has increasingly supplanted the role of the state. This is captured in a phrase, and many people in China believe this also, this is the, captured in this phrase, you know, guo jin min tui, that is the state is advancing in the, in the private sector, the people sector of the economy is retreating in the 
in this uh, period of the last uh, two years. And you can find a lot of micro evidence in favor of this. You know, certain private companies were, were taken over against their will by state companies, other, other, other examples that you could point to. But I don't think at the macro level the story really holds up. Obviously the state played a much bigger role facilitating the massive infrastructure programs and so forth, but let me just give you the kinds of evidence that I look at to um, come to the view that, the, that it's not really so clear-cut that the state has expanded its role dramatically. Now, the first thing I look at, since I'm very interested in the financial sector, <clears throat> where did the money go, this huge increase in lending? Now, unfortunately, the Chinese do not provide us with very good data on borrowers by their ownership characteristics, but we, I have here some proxy numbers, and I've already conceded that infrastructure lending increased dramatically, and that almost all of that is state. But if you look at household businesses, those are unincorporated private businesses. They're, their lending increase, the red line at the bottom is how much total lending increases. You can see roughly 30 to 35%. Private firms, these household businesses, uh, increase their lending in percentage terms by uh, as much as total lending went up. The next category, small firms. These are overwhelmingly private companies, and again, their lending increased by more, their borrowing increased by more than 30%. And if you look at medium and large firms, which are overwhelmingly state-owned, their borrowing increased by only about 25%. So the general argument that the state sector was favored in lending in 2009 is not really borne out by the evidence. Uh, with the very important footnote that the infrastructure sector, which is state, also borrowed quite a bit of money. So this was not a, a situation in which the access of the non-state sector to credit was all of a sudden dramatically curtailed. As you can see, it continued to grow. In absolute terms, it wasn't as much. That's because medium and large firms are in very capital-intensive industries and they have a higher demand for credit. But as you can see, their credit growth uh, did not expand as rapidly uh, as small firms, household businesses, and so forth. Um, we can also look at value added. What happened to the growth? This is within the industrial sector. Average increase about 11%, private sector growing at more than 18%, and then we have some intermediate forms of ownership in the next three lines. They're growing at above, at above average rates or average rates, and the state sector only grew at about 7% in terms of its output. The one that I have to explain is the foreign sector. Why did the foreign sector have the slowest growth? Well, the foreign sector, about half of its output goes to exports, and the exports collapsed in 2009. And so this was not discrimination against foreign companies or taxing them heavily or the state doing something nefarious to foreign uh, manufacturing companies. It's just that their market declined dramatically. They, they cut their production. I just got the data for uh, 2010, uh, on Friday after I'd sent off this PowerPoint, and in 2010, the foreign sector is again way ahead of the state sector and in the growth of output because of the recovery of the export sector last year. Now the context of this, remember, is that <clears throat> at the beginning of the reform period, if you looked at manufacturing, 80% of all output was produced by state-owned companies. Some of them got privatized over time, some of them went bankrupt, you had a liberalized market in which private firms could emerge. By the time we got to the eve of the financial crisis and the economic global economic recession, 
the government's share, state-owned share of manufacturing output had declined to about 28%. And the decline continued in 2009 and 2010. The state share, the state sector grew more slowly than the rest of the manufacturing sector. So the share of the private continued to expand, the share of these intermediate forms of ownership uh, held their own or expanded slightly, and the state share shrunk. So I see enormous continuity rather than a fundamental turning point that the critics of the, of the uh, stimulus program uh, have, um, have talked about. So uh, I am, as you can see, uh, a pretty strong uh, supporter of the stimulus program. I think it was, I started saying this uh, two years ago, early, large, and well-designed, and I think ultimately uh, not subject to the kind of shortcomings that we've read, uh, that we've read uh, so much about. Now, as I mentioned, the 12 five-year program, uh, again, talks about rebalancing. Um, they're talking about doing a lot of very important things. They're talking about liberalization of interest rates. They're talking about making sure that wage growth is at least as rapid as GDP growth, which would be quite a bit different than the last uh, decade. Uh, will this time be different? I, these policies have been on the agenda for a long time. They've been opposed by powerful interest groups in China. I'm a little bit optimistic, and I'll, and I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, I'm a little bit optimistic because I think the global environment has changed fundamentally, and I think that changes the debate within China. That is, I think the United States and Europe over the next several years are going to have below par economic growth as the deleveraging process takes longer, compounded by sovereign, uh, potential sovereign debt crises in Europe. And so I think the Chinese are really fundamentally understanding that their export-driven growth model is not going to work very well over the next four to five years, that they need to get their economy, want their economy to grow rapidly, so to do so they have to gin up more domestic consumption demand. Um, I also think we've seen already that um, domestic investment is moderating in, in 2010 compared to last year, particularly in infrastructure. I think China realizes it can't have a massive infrastructure build out every year. They can do it for a year, year and a half, but not at the pace of 2009. Uh, again, they need to have more offsetting uh, demand coming from the consumption side. So I am optimistic that they will move more forcefully on these four policy baskets that I talked about, that we will gradually see the consumption share of GDP begin to rise and that China's net exports will not go back to the high levels that we saw in 2007 and 2008. And so we'll get a fundamentally different structure of the economy emerging, one that is much more consumption driven, one that has a much lower investment rate uh, than we've seen in the last five years, and one that will not be contributing uh, at the high rate that it did in the recent past to global economic uh, imbalances. So I'm, I remain optimistic that uh, this, I think there's no mystery about how to do this rebalancing. I think they've identified the policy instruments that they need to move on, and although they haven't pursued them very forcefully over the last five years, uh, I think over the next five years uh, they will do so. So I'm, I hope I'm leaving you with an optimistic uh, outlook on uh, the Chinese economy and this very fundamental uh, transformation that I hope is underway. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, lots more good slides to steal uh, there. Um, Nicholas has kindly um, agreed to take some questions, so I'm uh, happy to throw it open, but I'm going to reserve the sort of chairman's 
prerogative to ask the first one. And that is that the, the public debate, or the, the trans-Pacific debate, that we might say, between China and the US has tended to focus on the exchange rate with um, a lot of US pressure on China to do something about it. Do you think that has been uh, counterproductive or just useless? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I would try to just add one nuance to your question, and that is I would differentiate a little bit between, in, in, in the United States, in our system, I would differentiate a little bit between the executive branch on the one hand and the legislative branch on the other. And in, def in, his, in his defense, while Secretary Geithner, who runs the Treasury Department, has been a critic of China's exchange rate policy, virtually every time he talks about this at any length, he also talks about these other elements of the rebalancing, and he also tries to encourage China to undertake uh, other kinds of reforms, wage liberalization, interest rate reform, uh, price reform, and so forth, particularly if you read his longer speeches. So he's, he's never just singularly hammering away on the exchange rate issue. On the other hand, in our Congress, you know, they can't chew gum and walk at the same time, so they can only talk about one issue. And unfortunately, they get a lot more press coverage than the Treasury Secretary does. So I think the impression one has is that we just have a, you know, a one-note message that is repeated mm -hmm. constantly at varying volumes. Uh, and it, that's only part of the story. Uh, as to whether or not that pressure is counterproductive, um, I tend to think it is. I think you really do have to address the whole range of issues, the whole range of policy issues that will help on rebalancing and not uh, adopt the simple-minded approach that we see in Congress that, you know, the exchange rate's a silver bullet and if they will just dial it to the right number, you know, everything will be permanently fixed. Thank you. Let me uh, throw it open now. There are some microphones that uh, are uh, floating around and will come at you. Um, who wants to? Yeah. Danny Qua down in the middle, second row in the middle. Thanks. You've got competing microphones here now. You found Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Danny Qua, London School of Economics. On your scorecard for China's economic performance uh, up until the stimulus program, um, you're given China high marks for its, its improvement in social expenditure, government social expenditure, something that I think many of us might not have been as aware of as we should be, how the numbers have so rapidly ramped up. But then you were obviously critical of the financial repression, of the price measures, the financial repression or the senior rate, the negative real interest rates that Chinese households are experiencing, um, the factor input price misalignment, how energy, water, and many other factor inputs are underpriced, and then finally the exchange rates. I wonder if I could ask you for an alternative, perhaps an alternative interpretation of the financial repression and the factor input price misalignment. Um, China might still view itself as, a, as an emerging economy that needs to industrialize even more than it already has. And when we look across the universe of historical experiences of countries, poor emerging economies that have sought to embark on an industrialization program, they've all subsidized energy and water and other factor inputs. They've all engineered negative interest rates in an attempt to increase uh, capital formation and in an attempt to in increase the industrialization in the economy. In some developing economies, 
um, this reaches a natural barrier because governments cannot continue to subsidize the cheap factor inputs. But this is not a problem in China. China's central government overall continues to run a healthy surplus. It looks out and it sees that it continues to need to move hundreds of millions of agricultural residents into the industrial area. So is that not an, a, an alternative interpretation that suggests that, yes, compared to conventional economic measures, this is misalignment is a little bit distressing. But on the other hand, compared to the universe of developing economies, this is par for the course. This is something that you know, all developing economies have tried to do. Uh, I, think that's, <clears throat> I think that's a very good question, this alternative interpretation. And I guess the way I would respond to it is, I, you know, the question is, when do, when do you give this up? And, uh, you know, what, what's the appropriate time? And I guess I agree with you that many countries have had financial repression, and certainly a lot of other economies in East Asia have had this historically. Uh, and, you know, Korea, especially uh, an economy that emphasized uh, high rates of investment, um, and a lot of industrial policy to support that. Um, <clears throat> so I think, I think I would argue that China's past the point at which these measures should be continued. In fact, I think they should have started phasing them out uh, earlier, uh, you know, starting 10 years ago, because by a number of indicators that I mentioned, uh, last year, for example, you know, investment was 47.5% of GDP. It's the, no other of the early East Asian modernizers ever had investment above 40% of GDP, with the single exception of Singapore, which had it for two or three years. China's now had six consecutive years of investment share above 40% of GDP, and I think that introduces a lot of distortions uh, in the economy. Um, its manufacturing share of GDP is already much higher than it ever was in Korea or Taiwan or other, company, other countries that have gone down this path. So I think China is, you know, if not at the end, uh, approaching the end at which this strategy uh, has high real economic payoff. And I worry that if they continue longer, the cost of getting out of the strategy gets higher. In other words, I guess I tend to the view that they probably have overinvested in the tradable goods sector, uh, that um, many of these uh, industries, or certainly many firms in these industries would be not only less profitable at an equilibrium exchange rate, but probably some of them would probably go bankrupt. And so the question is, when do you want to bear this cost? I think it should be sooner rather than later, because the longer you overinvest and tilt investment uh, heavily into the tradable goods sector at the expense of services, the bigger adjustment costs you will eventually face. So I think China's probably gone past the the optimal point, if there is such a thing for uh, supporting price distortions. Um, I'm not a complete free marketeer, so I, I, I certainly understand the logic. But China's been so successful and has such a high rate of investment for so long uh, and has such a massive industrial sector. Just saw in the, the new figures that came out from the World Steel Association, uh, 1.4 million, uh, excuse me, billion tons of steel produced last year, and China produced 44% of world steel output. Um, you know, something like uh, in the neighborhood of, of 600 million uh, metric tons. Um, and you, you can point to other examples. So um, I accept your, uh, you know, in alternative interpretation that this has been a, a, a pretty good strategy for some period of time, and I guess the question is, uh, when, when do you uh, 
you know, when do you uh, transform to something that's uh, more market oriented? Can I just add uh, just a supplement uh, on on this on the politics of it? I mean, could you can you not argue? I mean, I noticed you can came out with a rather optimistic conclusion at the end, but can you not argue that? that the more you go on with this very high investment in tradable goods and the more the bigger manufacturing becomes a share, the more politically powerful it is and therefore the more difficult it is to change because the kind of manufacturing lobby becomes even more, even stronger and is furthermore, I mean, in, in the UK I would say that our manufacturing lobby was never stronger than at the point when our manufacturing was hopelessly uncompetitive. And it, that's when, it, of course, it needed to be strong. Because that it, that's when it needed protection, is what I mean. And so, is there not a risk that, you know, as you carry on, that, that your manufacturers become much more politically powerful and more difficult to overcome, and therefore exchange rate flexibility becomes harder to achieve? No, I think, I think you're absolutely right, and I think the evidence in China over the last five years supports your, supports your point of view. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the central bank has been arguing for more exchange rate appreciation for more than five years, and they have been consistently opposed by an alliance that is very ably led by, currently by Mr. Chen Deming, the Minister of Commerce, who represents the export interests, and all of the first party secretaries of governors of the coastal hmm. provinces, you know, starting with Guangdong in the south, coming up to Jiangsu, and even north into Dalian Liaoning. Why would they want the exchange rate to appreciate? You know, you know, those provinces on the coast are producing 80% of the exports. The undervalued exchange rate is a subsidy to those regions, and it's a huge tax on the interior of the economy. There's no other way to look at it. And uh, they have thwarted um, you know, you know, undertaking the kinds of reforms that have been talked about in Beijing, but they haven't been able to mobilize enough support for them. And I think it's, it's a testimony to how powerful they are that, you know, Premier Wen Jiabao, who's talking about the harmonious society and giving everybody a chance and building up the interior and so forth and so on, does not recognize that the biggest hindrance to the development of the center in uh, far western parts of the country is this uh, undervalued exchange rate that is a subsidy of the coast uh, and a tax on the interior. So even though his heart is in the right place, in my opinion, he doesn't either doesn't understand how the exchange rate is a very important price that affects this calc you know affects this income distribution, or he doesn't have the political clout to to carry it out, and it's it's probably some of both. Um, Zhang uh, Weger, yeah, third row there. Now Weger formerly worked in Chinese CC, now working in uh, international organization here. As you are quite optimistic, but I have one concern related to the resource constraints. And in China for many years, there is a saying, I may, you know, everything China produces, the price will down. Everything China needs, the price will up. <laughs> and two days ago, we had a, a forum here, and the gentleman from Leo Tinto said, his prediction is with the coming years, the price will increase four times in terms of material. And the gentleman specialized in oil said maybe the future will be similar. Do you have any concern over the, the resource constraints on the further growth of Chinese economy? 
Well, uh, I certainly do. And again, one of the reasons I think China should be emphasizing rebalancing is that it's their voracious demand for petroleum and iron ore and copper and so forth that has driven up commodity prices so dramatically over the last 10 years, and particularly over the last five years. And that's a function of what I would, or I've already characterized as these outsized investment rates uh, of 47.5% of GDP. Now imagine an alternative scenario in which consumption goes back up by 10 percentage points, let's say, over the next 10 years. That, and that would lead to a big increase in the consumption share of GDP, you know, from 35% up to 45%. And it would lead, obviously, uh, you probably have some shrinkage of the external surplus. And that means the investment share of GDP will go down dramatically. And now that means investment will still be going up in absolute terms. But if you look at the difference between that alternative scenario and the business as usual, where we keep the current structure, it's massively different. By the time you get to 2019, uh, on this alternative scenario, you would have annually US dollars 1.2 trillion more consumption expenditure above what you would have and you'd have about $1.5 trillion less in investment expenditure than if they continued on the current trajectory. And uh, I think that will have very substantial, uh, well, from my point of view, positive effects on global commodity prices. Maybe it won't be good for Australia and a few other places that are big commodity exporters, but uh, you know, China's been the biggest source of incremental demand for a very broad range of commodities. This has been accelerated and exaggerated by this very, very high share of investment. So I, I certainly do think resource uh, constraints uh, could be important, but they will be at least somewhat mitigated if China rebalances its sources of economic growth. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Jared Lyons. Thanks. Um, good evening. Um, Jared Lyons from Standard Charter. Um, thanks for a great talk. Um, can I just follow up with some questions? In one of the reasons, a couple of different areas, um, governance issues. One of the reasons why people put their money in bank deposits is because they don't trust much of the corporate sector in China. How do you see the governance issues playing out, not just for corporates, but given Howard's position in advising the financial sector in terms of the banks within China? Are there any concerns there? Um, second, in terms of the immediate growth outlook, the fear in China, it seems to me, is they have the lethal combination of low interest rates, leverage, and one-way expectations in the property sector. And the only way to get tier one property cities, property prices down is to aggressively tighten. Do you think they have the guts, really, to tighten policy sufficiently to get property prices back under control? Um, the last issue, um, you haven't mentioned the fact that in 2015 the population starts to age quite rapidly. Is there any hope, therefore, for savings to come down as people start to age? Yeah. Well, three, <coughs> three very good questions. <coughs> On the governance um, and, and its relationship to the financial sector and, and the household allocation of savings, uh, I, I do take your point, and I think it is the case, that even though there have been a lot of bankruptcies in China and even some financial institutions uh, that have gone under over the last 20 years, no Chinese household depositor has ever lost a penny 
in a Chinese financial institution over the last 30 years. Uh, the government has always stepped in to make sure that when institutions fail, uh, many of them quite small, of course, uh, but when these institutions have failed, that household depositors have uh, been made whole. So that, that is an edge. But I think, I think what they should be having is a system that allows competition with the banks. I mean, take corporate bonds, for example. If you look at bonds issued by non-financial corporates in China, the total amount outstanding is in the neighborhood of 800 billion RMB. That's about 3% of GDP. Households have, remember the number, 30 trillion. Households have 30 trillion in the bank. And total non-financial corporate bonds outstanding is 800 billion. It's, the government has simply not, I think they don't want the banks to have any competition. Because if you have a free market in corporate bonds, you're not going to be able to run a highly repressive financial system in a banking system. And the government gets a lot of benefits from this highly repressed uh, banking-dominated system. So I think they ought to liberalize interest rates and uh, allow corporates uh, to issue uh, government bonds. Corporates, Chinese corporates that are now issuing RMB bonds in China are paying you know, like 3%, many of them perhaps underwritten by Standard Charter. And, you know, the average corporate interest rate uh, these days and a loan in China is, uh, you know, 6 or 7%. So um, I think there should be more competition. Um, and the appropriate regulatory uh, systems should be, you know, in place so that, uh, that, that um, there's some reasonable prospect for <coughs> a fair uh, shake for investors. On tightening, um, I have a little bit different interpretation on tightening. Uh, I think the tightening that's coming in the form of raising interest rates is primarily not to slow down the rate of growth of lending, but to slow down the rate of investment in housing. Because we know historically in China over the last couple of decades, when real interest rates get highly negative and property prices are going up, people take their money out of the banks and they buy that third, fourth, or fifth house. And some of them are doing that today, even despite uh, the discriminatory measures put in against uh, housing investors. And one of the reasons I say that is when they've raised interest rates a couple of times in recent months, uh, the press always focuses on the one-year deposit rate, you know, which, which went up in the fashion I described. But the long-term rates have gone up much more, usually 60 basis points on each adjustment instead of 25, 25 basis points. So what they're trying to do is to give households an incentive to move their money from short-term deposits into longer-term deposits, get that money tied up in the banking system where it can earn a better, still negative, slightly real, still a slightly negative real return, but not massively negative. And I think when the government, the banking, uh, when, when the central bank uh, wants to tighten uh, and slow down lending growth, they tend to rely much more on the reserve requirement. That, you know, neutralizes a predictable amount of money. You don't have to worry about what the interest sensitivity of the borrowers is. So I think they have two policy instruments. The reserve requirement, primarily to slow down the rate of growth of lending, and interest rates, which I think they're focusing primarily on the deposit side, to keep household money in the banking system and to slow down the asset price bubble in the housing sector. When they raise the deposit rates, they have to raise the lending rates, otherwise bank profitability would decline. So they they go up in uniform, and most people focus on the credit tightening, but I think, I think the motivation is a, is a little bit um, different. Now, your third question is on aging and um, what negative, no, actually what positive effect that might have in terms of reducing the savings rate um, of, of households. 
I don't think China should be waiting until 2015 to hope that gradually the demographics will bring down the savings rate. We've seen in Japan, eventually it does, it does have an effect, but it takes a long time uh, even after your working age population begins to shrink. It takes a long time before the household savings rate really comes down significantly. So I think they need to, to uh, take other steps to affect the savings rate uh, the, the corporate, the, the dividend tax, the dividend requirement uh, on big state-owned companies, uh, the government itself should probably be running, uh, you know, not saving so much. Um, so some tax cuts uh, would be in order, I think. Uh, more taxes, I mean, tax cuts on individuals, excuse me, higher taxes on corporates, particularly the big state-owned corporates that operate in monopolistic sectors and have, you know, they're just, it's like they're printing money. Um, their profits are so high um, and use that to build out the social safety net. So. Thanks. Yeah, one in the, in the middle here. Um, I'm Hong from London School of Economics and I have two questions. Um, the first one is, um, can you talk about the negative side of appreciation of RMB? And the second question is that um, China doesn't have a bond market, and the financial system of China is dominated by banks. Uh, as you can see from the uh, graphs, that the loans account for a large proportion of China's GDP. And why do you think the Chinese authorities seem to be resistant to develop a bond market? Thank you. Well, <clears throat> let me take the second question first, because I think I understood it better. I'm not sure I understood the question about appreciation. But on the bond market, I think I mean, this goes back to financial repression, which I've tried to understand in China. And it's easy to estimate what the cost to households is of financial repression. The more interesting question is who gains? I mean, you know, if, if I'm the bank and I'm giving you no interest on your money, I've got all the gains. But that's the beginning of the story. Corporate borrowers, corporates that borrow a lot gain a little bit because they get cheap. Because uh, my assumption is if deposit rates went up, lending rates would also go up somewhat. Uh, but it turns out the biggest gainer of financial repression in China is the People's Bank of China. And the reason is very simple. Uh, in order to maintain price stability over a period where they have been massively intervening in the foreign exchange market and buying foreign uh, buying foreign currency in an amount almost equal to 10% of GDP year after year after year. We always, I, I explain to people, I don't have to explain to this audience, but I always explain to people, you know, we always talk about buying in foreign exchange. I see you have to change your mind around it. They're selling domestic currency. That's how they get this foreign exchange. So it's a massive injection of domestic currency into the market, into the, into the economy. And they have to get this back, otherwise they're going to have hyperinflation. They're not going to have inflation at the low rates that I showed you in one of those diagrams. So how do they do it? Well, they raise reserve requirements on the one hand, and they issue uh, sterilization bonds. The central bank issues its own bonds. But they pay almost no interest on these bonds. I do not believe banks voluntarily buy these bonds. Someone in Beijing rings them up and says, would you like to buy another couple hundred billion of these bonds? <laughs> How much do they earn? Oh, well, maybe 2%, 2.5%. Or they put them in required reserves, which pay even less, 1.6%. So the banks benefit from the huge spread between deposit rates and lending rates. That taxes the household sector. But the central bank, in turn, taxes most of that away from the banks by either making them put massive amounts of what other 
ordinary, normal banking system has a reserve requirement of 18%, which it is now, 18%. That's what you find in economies that have, are, are going through or recently have gone through hyperinflation. And the central bank has tried to slow down the rate of growth of money creation. 18% is unheard of for an economy with the growth rate of China and the low inflation rate of China. It's nothing but a tax on banks. And similarly, the roughly $4 trillion outstanding in central bank sterilization bonds is also a tax on banks. So the households are taxed, the banks get huge windfall, and then the central government taxes most of that, or a very large part of it, away. So the biggest gainer of this financial repression at the end of the day is the central bank. It doesn't want to do this, but it's been tasked with keeping the exchange rate at a highly undervalued level. So it has, and it doesn't want to have inflation since its main policy goal is its main policy mandate is to keep inflation low. So they are in effect forced, if you will, to run this highly repressive financial system. So you can't have a free bond market in an environment where you're having highly negative real rates of return on deposits. Because, you know, if, if corporations started issuing bonds and we said, oh, the interest rate we're going to pay you is minus 2%, minus 3%, minus 4%, how many bonds are they going to sell? So uh, my view is that the, regulata the regulators, to keep this system afloat, have to, they simply cannot allow a significant corporate bond market to emerge because it would undermine their ability to run a highly repressed banking system. We're going to take one more question down here. Yeah. Hi, Alex Barrett from Standard Chartered. You haven't really talked about uh, wages very much. Um, are the uh, wage increases that we're starting to see coming through in China uh, an irrelevance, or are they actually going to be a powerful factor in the rebalancing of the, uh, of the Chinese economy? Well, I, I thank you for that question because I didn't, I didn't address that, and uh, it is potentially a very important uh, contributor to, to rebalancing. One of the reasons I didn't address it, quite frankly, is that the data in this area are, are somewhat mixed. Um, one has to start out by recognizing that wages in China's formal sector have been rising over the last six or seven years at somewhere between 15 and 17 percent per year. And, you know, inflation's been 2 or 3%, so real wages in China have been going up at a pretty good clip. The more difficult question is what's happening to wages in what we would call the informal sector, the people that are migrating from rural areas to work in factories in Shenzhen and other places on the East Coast. The Chinese don't regularly release very much data, and um, my tentative view is that wages in that sector for quite a few years were pretty much flat because the available supply of people to move was fairly high. So corporations doing <coughs> this labor-intensive manufacturing in the coast didn't really have to pay higher and higher wages. I think that is beginning to change, and that the, even the wage now is going up, not just for the formal sector workers, but for informal sector workers, contract workers, migrant workers, whatever you want to call them. And that, over time, should have an effect on um, the, you know, China's price level will make, uh, make China's exports somewhat less competitive, presumably would have an effect similar to the uh, appreciation of the exchange rate. The, 
the, but the reality is also that productivity gains in the tradable goods sector, particularly in this labor-intensive assembly operations that dominate in the southeast coast, productivity gains, I mean, this has mostly been run by Taiwanese companies, and they figure out how to squeeze out three or four percent of their costs year after year after year. They're dealing with these large, you know, they're dealing with Apple and these other uh, vendors that have huge market power and dictate ever lower prices from, uh, that they'll pay. So that will offset some of the wage increase. So I think we'll have to see wages go up even more rapidly and for a more sustained period before wage adjustment contributes to the rebalancing. So there was one more hand just over here. If we could make this the last one, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just there. Uh, I'm doing comparative politics in LNC. Uh, my question is uh, concerning the general condition of the Chinese economy. Um, because there, is, uh, there are worries that uh, uh, China may be experiencing some uh, middle-income uh, blues in its economic development, because China is not unique in having a very rapid economic development at a low level, uh, a low per capita GDP level. And now um, the economy is uh, relatively reaching the middle uh, income level. There are some many constraints, for example, the lack of ability to innovate and the uh, authoritarian regime, the political problem, the corruption problem, the, the uh, environment, uh, resource restraints, things like that. So how do you uh, think about this? Uh, problems of the chi uh, in, in terms of China's economic development? Well, <clears throat> I think your question is a very good one because it reminds us there have been a lot of other economies that have grown very fast for a couple of decades and then seem to you know, go into the ditch uh, more or less and have negative growth for a period of time or very slow growth sometimes for a very long period. And uh, no doubt China's at, at risk of, uh, of this problem as well. I don't see it as an immediate problem because um, most of the economies that go into the ditch are ahead of where China is today in terms of per capita income. You know, even though we've had this very rapid growth, it's from a very low base, and uh, China's per capita income is in the neighborhood of roughly $4,000 U.S. And when you look at other, uh, you know, emerging economies in earlier periods that experience very sharp slowdowns they were at significantly higher levels of per capita GDP. And part of the reason that matters, of course, is convergence. I mean, obviously, China has had high productivity growth. Maybe on some measures, China doesn't have very much innovation. But boy, if you look at total factor productivity, they're doing quite well uh, on most measures. And part of that is that they're closing the distance between the frontier technology and, and where they are. And when that frontier begins to, you know, when the distance between China and the frontier begins to shrink, then, then you might anticipate a slowdown. But I think there's still quite a bit of distance between where China is and the frontier. So I think China has at least the potential to continue to grow pretty rapidly. I don't mean 11, 12, 13 percent like they did for much of the previous decade, but certainly 8, 9 percent uh, for quite an additional period of time <clears throat> if they can change the structure of demand in a way that I outlined uh, this evening and get away from uh, the overinvestment and excess, re in my view, excess reliance on net exports. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a terrific uh, lecture, very um, powerfully in the spirit of this uh, series. Uh, I think it's illuminated some quite difficult corners of uh, China's financial system uh, in particular. We're very grateful to you for coming over and particularly for 
answering uh, a wide range of questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.